Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Fall is upon us. It's October. It will soon be World Series time, which means it's time time to talk about some baseball and some World Series history. And here to do that for you is my co-host, Andrew Newman, and myself, Dan Newman. We are the co-hosts of the Hello Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We would like to encourage you all to check out the podcast on Facebook. Look us up, Hello Old Sports Podcast. You can email us at helloldsports at gmail.com. You can check out the entirety of the Sports History Network at sportshistorynetwork.com. Buy some merchandise, buy yourself a Hello Old Sports t-shirt. A couple of my friends have actually done so already. I was at a party about a week ago with my friend Ken, and he stripped off his sweatshirt to reveal a Hello Old Sports t-shirt and then showed me a picture of his wife uh, wearing her Hello Old Sports t-shirt. So I'd I'd like to thank uh, and give a shout out to Jen and Ken and their family for listening to us every week when we put out these podcasts. It's always good to have friends. It's always good to have fans. And of course, it's good to have friends who are fans. So thank you to Jen and Ken and your Lovely family who I won't mention the kids' names, but I uh, just wanted to. Ben and Lynn. <laughs> just wanted to thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for listening and your family for for always supporting the podcast with T-shirts, too, apparently. So thank you guys very much for that. I am joined, as always, as mentioned, by my co-host, Andrew Newman. And Andrew, how are you doing on this fine evening? Well, after that concise intro, I'm doing very well. Um <laughs> Right to the point. Um, yeah, it's good. Uh, the Yankees just tied this game at one as I'm sitting here uh, listening to uh, the beginning of the intro to this episode. These have been some of my favorite episodes. These ones we're going to do tonight are uh, the one, one we're going to do tonight, which is where we dive into a specific year. Uh, we've done 1920. We've done 1986. We've done we've done at least one other one, haven't we? Besides that. Well, kind of. We did the 80-81 Philly teams. Um, We've done 20. We've done 86. We did 41. That's right. We're going to do 82 later this year as a celebration of the 40th anniversary of my birth 40 years ago, 1982, 40-year birthday. And you're right. Then we've done sort of individual specific, a little more specific with Philly. And next year, I don't know if we've even talked about this, but next year we have to do on its 25 year anniversary, we have to do 1998 because of the home run chase and the 98 Yankees and Jordan's last year with the bulls and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we've done quite a few of these and tonight we'll just be talking about one aspect. We'll just be talking about the 47 world series, but it is fun. Did you not realize that? No, 
I did not. Um, I have a lot of stuff we don't need to talk about. <laughs> did you? I, I, I have a lot of stuff here that's neither here nor there. About the 1947, about hockey in 1947 and college football in 1947 that uh, maybe we can zoom through to sort of set the stage. But um, for some reason, I had it in my head that we were doing the entire year 1947. No, but, I thought uh, I had I thought I had explicitly said 47. Sure what did you sure say? You had. <laughs> I'm sure you had. I'm, I'm sure I just misunderstood or or just took a little bit of the context and um, wrote a bunch of stuff down. It's better than the alternative, though, if I had only looked at the World <laughs> Series and uh, well. and uh, hadn't looked at anything else. Then we and we were talking about everything else. I'd be a little bit screwed. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can make it work, but I'm just a little disappointed. We won't get to talk about uh, Johnny Lujak winning the Heisman Trophy. Or um, the Joe Lewis fight, uh, Joe Lewis with a, a a fight where he basically acknowledged that he did not, uh, he he should have lost the decision um, against Jersey Joe Walcott in December of '47 uh, that he won by a controversial split decision. The first college baseball World Series, Cal over Yale. You know who was on that Yale team? George H. W. Bush. George H. W. Bush on the uh, team. We won't get to talk about Whipper Billy Watson losing the title to Luthez in the National Wrestling Association. We won't get to talk about any of that. Uh, and that's fine because um, that's entirely my fault. And let's just rip out most of these pages and talk about the World Series. <laughs> yeah, I thought that had been clear, but I'm sure it was. Well, it certainly wasn't. You probably made it clear. I just didn't. I just ignored it, or, or you know, got nineteen forty seven in my head and whatever. But all right, I'm ready now. You, you know, there's only one thing I can say to you. Nicely produced, wonderfully produced. Well, I'm all right. Um, you know, we're fine. I'm a gamer. So who <laughs> played in the nineteen forty seven World Series? <laughs> all right, so. The 1947 World Series was the second ever, 75 years ago this year, it was the second ever World Series between the the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was the fourth World Series that the Dodgers had ever been in. They had lost in 1916 to Boston. They'd lost in 1920 to Cleveland. And then in 41, with Leo DeRocher as the manager, they had gone to the World Series against the Yankees. Lost in five games, a series probably most notably remembered for the dropped third strike by Mickey Owen in game four with Tommy Henrik at the plate. Yankees win that game. They win game five and go on to um, dominate the 1940s much as they had the 1930s and the 1920s. The 1947 World Series, if you know anything about baseball, if you know anything about sports, or really if you know anything about America, 1947 obviously is Jackie Robinson. And so in addition to being Robinson's rookie year, it was also the first time that a black player appeared in the Major League World Series. And actually, there are actually two black players who appear in the World Series that year. It's not just Robinson who starts and plays every game, but also a pitcher by the name of Dan Bankhead, who had been a star pitcher in the Negro Leagues and who actually only enters the game as a pinch hitter 
but I'm sorry, as a pinch runner, I should say. So the first two black men to play in the World Series are Jackie Robinson and Dan Bankhead in 1947. It's a seven game series. It's DiMaggio and Berra. It's Yogi Berra's first World Series. It's the first World Series, obviously, for Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges and some of these guys. The Dodgers are not quite yet the boys of summer yet. Campanella is not on the team yet. Robinson is really the only guy uh, other than Pee Wee Reese who'd been with the team since the early 40s. Some of the people you'd think about later, Duke Snyder and Gil Hodges, they're on the team. Although, actually, I don't know if Snyder even gets into the World Series in 47. I'd have to look that up real quick. So it's not the famous Boys of Summer team of Hodges, Reese, Robinson, Snyder, Ferrillo, Campy. It's not exactly that team, but you Gil, Gil Hodges appears in one game in the World Series in 47. Snyder's not there yet. In fact, I don't know if Snyder even uh, makes it to the majors, even for a cup of coffee in 47. I have to look up exactly when his rookie I'll year look, was. I'll look that up. By 49, it's really the full team of the boys of summer. Dodgers, Hodges, Campanella, Carl Ferrillo, Robinson and Reese still there. Obviously, all those guys have full time starting jobs with the Dodgers by the time they make it to the World Series two years later to play the Yankees yet again in the 49 World Series. Robinson and Reese are there in 47, but you still have a lot of other guys who wouldn't be around even a couple years later. Eddie Stanky and Pete Reeser and Dixie Walker. So it's a it's a little bit of a transitional year for a number of reasons for the Dodgers in 47. And the Yankees are kind of in a transition that year, too. Joe McCarthy had been the manager of the team starting in, I think, 31 was McCarthy's year. He kind of had taken over a couple of years after Miller Huggins passed away and taken over this team of Ruth and Gehrig and Lazari and Led them to the World Series in 32. That was the famed Ruth called shot year. Ruth retires. DiMaggio joins the team. Yankees win four World Series in a row, 36, 37, 38, 39. Gehrig obviously has to retire because he's ill, fatally so. And then the Yankees continue to roll through the 40s. 41, they win the World Series over the Dodgers, like we mentioned. That's the DiMaggio 56-game streak year. 42, they make it and lose. 43, with a very different team, they make it to the World Series and beat St. Louis. And this is a team that doesn't have DiMaggio on it, doesn't have some of the other, doesn't have Rizzuto on it, doesn't have some of these guys. They're all serving in a war. And McCarthy wins with guys like Nick Etten and Tuck Steinbeck uh, leading the team over the Cardinals in 43. McCarthy manages the team throughout the war. And then in 46, he sort of burns out on the job. He's drinking more than he ever has. And he eventually just in the middle of a season, in the middle of a road trip, he just burns out. And And I got to be honest, I did not until I did my research for this episode. I did not know that, that he resigned. He just left and resigned. I had always just assumed he, you know, in traditional Yankee fashion, sort of like they did with you know, Joe Torrey and Casey Stangle, they just kind of were like, well, you won a bunch, but it's been a while. So you're gone. now." I didn't realize that he 
just resigned. They were concerned about his drinking and and uh, and all of that. I figured he was just fired. He had a confrontation with a relief pitcher by the name of Joe Page, who was somebody we'll talk about a little further on in this episode. And yeah, he he had basically went home to Buffalo and phoned in his resignation, and that was the end of him. Couple different guys, sort of journeyman types, uh, you know, players. I believe who who managed the Yankees the remainder of the 46 season. I, for some reason I have the name Johnny noon in my head. And I think, I think actually bill Dickey might've even managed them. For, I have that. Let me pull it up here. Um, I thought I had it. They were managed for 35 games by McCarthy who at 35 games. He was 22 and 13. That's not a bad record. And then bill Dickey, the retiring catcher was 57 and 48. Again, not a bad record. And then Johnny Noon, who I, I don't know anything about, he was probably a lifetime coach, uh, coached the last 14 games of the season, went eight and six. Not a bad record, only 87 and 67, but not great by Yankee standards. And so they decide that they need a new manager and they call on a gentleman by the name of Bucky Harris, who had been a player manager with the Washington Senators in the 1920s. His first year as a manager was at the age of, he was 27 years of age in 1924, won the World Series uh, for the Washington Senators, the first and only World Series ever won by the Washington Senators franchise. Walter Johnson, the aging veteran, gets a World Series finally. Only World Series won by a D.C. team until 2019, almost 100 years later when the Nationals win it all. And he manages the Senators for a few more years. Then he's in Detroit. He actually leaves Detroit just just before they start winning World Championships and going to World Series in the mid-30s. He's in Boston for a year. Then he's back with the Senators. He's in Philly with the Philadelphia Phillies for a year. And then finally, in 1947, he is hired to manage the vaunted New York Yankees, and he's their manager going into the 47 World Series and the 47 season, I should say. Yeah, and it's kind of a, by the way, I went back, Snyder got played in like 40 games in 47 and then 53 games in 48 and then uh, took, you know, had a full season in 49, starting with the Dodgers. Um you know, it's interesting when you look back on it in hindsight, because, you know, from a Yankee standpoint, there's sort of four different pillars. You know, there's there's the Huggins era. Huggins dies towards the end of the 29th season. Bob Shockey coaches in 31 or excuse me, in 30. McCarthy takes over. We just talked about McCarthy's era from 31 to 46. He wins, I believe, seven championships. Then there's this couple of year gap, which we're talking about now. Then there's the Casey Stangel era till 1960, and then later there's Tory. Then there's some other guys who pick up title. You know, Ralph Houck has two championships, Billy Martin, Bob Lemon, Joe Girardi. But you kind of think of the four sort of big eras, and the first three of them, with the exception of a couple of years, are almost uninterrupted. There's just like a year or two buffer between Huggins and McCarthy, and then between McCarthy and uh, and Stangel. But in the middle. You have this Bucky Harris team who they win the World Series in 1947. I think a lot of people who aren't specifically, you know, Yankee baseball experts, but still like our baseball historians, if you gave them two guesses as who the manager of that team was, 
you know, and again, obviously not like real historians, but people who are like baseball history fans, they would first guess McCarthy and then they would guess Stangle. They wouldn't realize, oh, yeah, there was somebody in between that. And somebody who's a Hall of Fame manager, for that matter. That's true, too. Yeah. The other thing that's worth noting about Harris is that he grew up in a very sort of working class, poor background, but he's married to a woman who is from D.C. She'd grown up in a mansion in D.C. and he's sort of she's sort of a society type woman and it's so so much so that when they got married in the 20s i guess it would have been the early 20s in dc uh, the president coolidge and his wife attended their wedding so she was somebody who had kind of run in very different uh rich circles and he was very much not that and as 1947 is beginning he is going through a divorce throughout the 47 season and there's an interesting story there I be- that um that I should mention. And I just want to make sure that it's a divorce and not a death because I don't want to attribute the wrong thing here. So hold on one second here. Yeah. And, and while you're doing that, let's just kind of, you know, set the stage you talked about. We're just a couple of years off the war. We had that 41 World Series between the Yankees and the Dodgers. The Dodgers obviously at that point are still all white. It's it's there's a couple of guys who would be later associated with the late forties teams, but you know, it's, it's almost on an Island there. It's the last year of, you know, the, for, it's the last normal year for a while as the, the war years go on, they get progressively weirder in 42, 43, 44, 45 is, is still mostly a war year. And as we're coming out of it, 46 is the year that the the Red Sox and the Cardinals get to the World Series. So the Yankees, you know, it's now been three years since the Yankees have been to a World Series, or I guess three, like three straight pennants that they didn't get. They didn't win the pennant in 44, 45, or 46, which is the longest stretch they'd had since, what, 32 to 36. Correct. At that point. Mm -hmm. I was right. uh, His first marriage did end in a divorce. mm Mm-hmm. The Yankees are, for the first time, maybe the fo- maybe the following the previous year rather a little bit, but the Yankees have returned, especially on offense. This is a return of the pre-war Yankees: DiMaggio in center field at thirty-two, Tommy Henrik thirty-four, Rizzuto at twenty-nine at shortstop, Charlie Keller who misses much of the season with injury. Lots of guys in their 30s, a couple in their early 20s. The only young guy on the team really is Yogi Berra, who had come up a little bit the year before and played some games. 47 is his first full season. But Berra is going back and forth between catcher and the outfield because his defense is suspect. His arm is very suspect. Harris doesn't have a lot of confidence in Berra as a catcher. In fact, it's not until a couple of years when Stengel comes on and decides he is going to make Yogi Berra a catcher that Berra comes into his own as a catcher. So Berra is the kind of the one young guy on this 47 team that is a regular everyday player and his future with the team, his future as a catcher is very much in doubt. And then the pitching staff is really kind of a a bunch of journeymen. You have Allie Reynolds, who would be on the team 
throughout the late 40s and early 50s, he'd be one of the famed big three of Rashi, Lopat, and Reynolds that would win the five World Series in a row, late 40s, early 50s. But then you got Speck Shea and Spud Chandler, who's 39, and a journeyman by the name of Bobo Newsom, who always refers to himself in the third person. He calls himself Bobo. Bobo Newsom in his career manages to play on, let's count them, the Dodgers, the Cubs, the Browns, the Senators, the Red Sox, the Tigers, the Dodgers. I, I said the Dodgers already, so that's six. The Athletics is seven, and the Yankees is eight, and the Giants is nine. So he plays on more than half the teams in Major League Baseball during his time as a Major League pitcher. If you look at his baseball reference page you know how on the baseball reference they have all the numbers that the guy wore his is like five <laughs> columns long it's crazy and so this is the team this is sort of in between the red roughing lefty gomez years of the yankees but before the reynolds rashi lopat later whitey ford and guys like that so a very in-between team for the Yankees it's kind of there's a book I, I think it's called bridging two dynasties that talks about this team it kind of is in some ways the end of the McCarthy years but then in a lot of other ways it's sort of the beginning of the Stengel years so that's the Yankees the Dodgers obviously this is a Dodger team that's gotten a lot of attention through throughout the years um yeah we talked in a recent episode about Larry McPhail, who was an owner of the Dodgers and then by 47 is an owner of the Yankees. And we'll talk about him. So the, the Dodger team, um, Larry McPhail had been an owner of the Dodgers. He was sort of forced out by his fellow owners. They bring in Branch Rickey. McPhail's now one of the ownership group of the Yankees. We'll talk about McPhail at the very end of this episode. Branch Rickey, in addition to all of his activities in building a team and when he's not busy trying to screw Charlie Connerly out of a contract <laughs> in the AAFC, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he makes the move to bring Jackie Robinson to organized white baseball first to the Montreal Royals in 46, which is the Dodgers top farm team. And then to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 47, now is probably not the time to go down the rabbit hole of all of the obstacles faced by Robinson in his rookie year. And really, frankly, you know, throughout his career, but we're particularly talking about 47, you know, and a lot of this is stuff that has been sort of shrouded in. I don't know, I guess you'd call it mystery as to what exactly what exactly the specific nature of the resistance to Robinson was. You're talking about within the Dodgers clubhouse? Yeah, within the Dodgers. I mean, you know, there's, there's people that I guess I guess the fact that there was some sort of a petition is pretty mm -hmm. that's pretty well established, led by Dixie Walker, who is perhaps the most beloved Dodger all-star mm -hmm. all outfielder, all, older guy at 36 himself. It was it was Dixie Walker, it was Bobby Bragan, who was the third string catcher, and off the top of my head, I don't remember who the third guy was who was. Let me see. Let me see if I can find it. So this happens in, in spring training of 47. This had been Robinson signs in what December of 45, something like that. 
46, they sent him up to Montreal to play for the Dodgers top farm team. He has a great year that I believe the Montreal Royals win the pennant or whatever the championship is there. 47, he's in camp a lot with Montreal, but you know, they all are training down in, in Florida, playing really well in exhibitions against the Dodgers. And, you know, they kind of make the decision, all right, it's time to bring this guy over or, you know, or at least it's clear that that's going to happen sooner rather than later. The Dodgers, who, like a lot of teams at the time, had a lot of Southerners. Um, mm-hmm. You know, truthfully, a lot of the American baseball players now are Southerners or from California. The warmer weather is the breeding ground for baseball in the United States. I guess everywhere, but, you know, specifically, I'm talking about the U.S. now. Had a lot of Southerners. Certainly not all of them had the same degree. I think a guy like Dixie Walker, it's pretty clear it was out and out racism. That was why he didn't want Robinson on the team and Mm -hmm. didn't want, you know, a lot of these guys were not just, they didn't want a black guy on their team. They didn't want to shower with him. They didn't want to ride the bus with him. They also didn't want their friends that back down South to be critical of how could you play with a guy like that? That sort of thing. Um, I think a few other guys, and none of this is excusable, so don't think I'm trying to couch it. There was probably, within a bunch of other guys, there was a combination of, yes, good old-fashioned racism. Also, well, we got a good team. This is going to become a sideshow. We don't need him. Two, he's also he's going to take somebody's spot. Also, every game is going to become a circus now. Like Worried about the perception of them in their hometowns. And, you know, some yeah. of them said I had businesses. Yeah, there's you know, you're not excusing any of it by noting that there are gradations of it. And I think it's also worth noting. And again, this doesn't excuse it. But Dixie Walker showed great remorse throughout his life. He lived a very long time. He lived, I think, well into the 90s. And he he always, you know, expressed remorse for the fact that he called it the dumbest thing he ever did and apologized for it. And and let's let's also point out. And again, I'm I'm not defending it. I mean, I guess I can't go this route really because he was older than I thought he was going to be. But, you know, Dixie Walker is 37 years old. He was born in 1910 in Georgia. You know, probably knew people, probably had older people around, maybe a grandparent or certainly people of that generation who fought in the Civil War. I don't know that the I don't the, the point I'm trying to make is I don't think Dixie Walker was. I think every team probably had several Dixie Walkers throughout their organization. Um, you know, the Yankees, as we'll talk about very famously, were one of the last teams to integrate. Um, and they had several guys on their team who probably would have reacted the same as Dixie Walker or worse. So he was certainly is didn't acquit himself very well and is a guy that people remember as a historical figure in that story of 1947, he's sort of the the one they talk about him and then Ben Chapman in uh, in Philadelphia. Um, but there was probably a lot more guys in Major League Baseball who shared Dixie Walker sentiments in March of 1947 than there were who felt otherwise. And he's sensed from central casting to be the villain in the story. Southern guy, his name is Dixie. You know, he starts the petition. It, it's perfect if you want to sort of tell the tell the story. A couple more notes. First of all, Robinson is a second baseman. 
that's what he had played in the Negro Leagues. That what he that's what he played in his one minor league season with the Montreal Royals. Dodgers have a very good second baseman. They have Eddie Stanky, who I believe is himself. Yeah, he's he's a foreign born or a foreign born, a, a southern born guy. He's oh, actually no, he's not. He's from Philly, but he he died in Alabama. So I don't know whether he maybe he grew up in Alabama, but he, he was born in Philly. Um, no, he went to high school in Philly. So anyway, not a southerner, but but ends up uh, living in the South later in his career. They have a very good second baseman in Eddie Stanky, a guy who'd been a, a solid player for them for the last few years. Broke in with the Cubs, ends up later being a a star with the Giants and also with the Braves. Eddie Stanky goes to the World Series. This is this is crazy to think about with Eddie Stanky goes to the World Series with the Dodgers in forty seven, the Braves in forty eight, and then the Giants in fifty one. And he can't can't stay on a team for long, but he makes the World Series with half the National League teams in the 40s and early 50s. So they move Robinson to first base for the 47 season, which is not his natural position, but he he goes there. I believe he plays in every game at first base for the Dodgers in 47. Let's take a look here. Robinson plays in 151 games, and the Dodgers play 155, it looks like. So all but four games, Jackie Robinson, and I, I assume he starts in most, you know, almost all of those. So he wins rookie of the year. He leads the league in stolen bases. He leads the league in sacrifices, bats 297. His his better years were in front of him, but wins the very first rookie of the year award issued by the Sporting News. So it is the spark of Robinson on a team that was already a very good team. They had won 96 games the year before and lost the pennant to the St. Louis Cardinals in the St. Louis. Had won, this was St. Louis's fourth pennant in a row in 46. So Robinson sort of provides that spark to get the team over the hump Dixie Walker, despite being 36, hits 306, uh, second on the team in batting. The pitching is led by a young 21-year-old ace who wins a game for every year that he had been alive in the 1947 season. The only time this gentleman ever wins 20 games. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. Ralph Branca. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. This is Ralph Branca, the future father-in-law of Hello Old Sports guest Bobby Valentine, who is, of course, much, much later known as being the one who gives up the famed home run to Bobby Thompson in the 51 National League playoff game. He is the ace of the Dodgers as a rookie in the 47 season. I guess he's not technically a rookie. He, he played... um He'd been on the team a couple years, sort of kind of on and off starter reliever. But 47 is his first year as a full time starter, starting pitcher. He starts 36 games for the Dodgers, goes 21 and 12. Brank is a New York guy uh, born in Westchester in Mount Vernon, New York. And so he's a New Yorker through and through. And the Dodgers finish uh, in first place and they go into the World Series with the Yankees, I guess the only other thing maybe we want to mention is the fact that they do not have their longtime manager with them. Yeah, in the nineteen forty-seven season. I was gonna say we we got to talk about that. We should mention that the 
the movie 47 covers this and I don't think they're fully honest about why DeRocher is suspended for the entire year. I think the movie makes it seem like it's just because he married a woman, his, his relationship with Lorraine Day, and that there was some, you know, controversy with the Catholic, that maybe might have been CYO, but, but some sort of Catholic youth organization that, well, it was, you know, the woman was, I don't know if Lorraine Day was officially divorced yet when him and DeRocher started, or when her and DeRocher started uh, checking up, and maybe they got married before a divorce was finalized and all that stuff. And certainly there was that sort of backlash, but, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't the real crux of it that he had really been associated with some known gamblers and was considerably in debt to gamblers? Yes, that is essentially it. He was repeatedly concerting with gamblers in a way that was not healthy for baseball. Yeah, if, so- he, was going, if he was going out with gamblers and his... his married girlfriend i think the problem was more the gamblers than the married girlfriend <laughs> exactly oh uh, yeah go ahead. Sorry. and so they 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 suspend derosher for a year and they bring in a guy who'd been a major leaguer in the 19 teens and had sort of been bouncing around coaching and managing throughout baseball a guy by the name of bert Schotten who is known as kindly old Bert Schotten. He's an older guy. He won at the time, right? Something 61. Like that. Yeah. I think about in his early sixties manages the game in a shirt and tie coat and tie. So he's one of these guys kind of like a Connie Mack who never goes on the field. And I think Robinson always credits Schotten with being a, a calming force and somebody who was supportive of his integrating the, the team and integrating the major leagues. Ironically, when DeRocher comes back in 48, one of the issues is that he and Robinson hate each other. And Robinson, despite the fact that when this petition was circulating, DeRocher was one of the guys who came to Robinson's defense. And then they ended up when when DeRocher ends up on the Giants years later, he and Robinson end up just mercilessly taunting each other. Not not to be fair, it was not a racial thing with DeRocher. Maybe, you know. A slur might have made its way in there, but it was uh, it was Dur- much more colorful than that. DeRoche was probably the first guy in baseball who legitimately hated Jackie Robinson for reasons other than race. Um, <laughs> and I think he might have hated DeRoche because Robinson hated him. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. So just on shot and real quick, he'd managed a little. He was with this, the Reds in 1934. His last big league managing before 1947 was for a year with the Reds in 1934. Actually, for one game, he was the manager. He'd spent a lot of the previous time in the Cardinals managing their top farm team in Rochester. And then he was with the uh, he was a coach on the Indians staff in from 42 to 45. And then he had just left, became a, a, a scout in 1946 for the Dodgers. So, you know, it's not like he is a guy who had a long managerial career, long career in baseball, but not as a major league manager. and. You know, you think about the way you described it. Okay, yeah, it could be a boon that you have sort of a kindly old guy in this situation. But that could also, if you think about it, that could have gone the other way if it was a guy who didn't have an overbearing presence. On the surface, you might think a guy like DeRocher would have been better to handle that because he's got a big personality. He could sort of come in and kick ass and, and line people up and make sure there was no dissension in the locker room. Whereas... You know, you might think, oh, an older guy without a, a real outgoing, you know, sort of dominant personality. 
he might not be able to quell some of these problems that the team would have, but it seems like it worked the opposite way where he was a sort of a calming presence and the other guys on the team would have had to at least respect him because of his, you know, his age and his sort of demeanor and things like that. I think that's exactly right. So we won't, we won't recap the season, but these are the two pennant winners. There had been a few subway series, although they weren't called that at the time. Yankees had played the giants in 21, 22 and 23. They played them again in 36 and 37. And they would play them again in 51 for the last giant Yankee subway series. This was the second Yankee Dodger subway series. And there would be another, what, five more in the late 40s, early 50s, 49, 52, 53, 55, 56. So this is the second. And throwing 51 is another subway series. With yeah. Two different teams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, I mean, 51 is a crazy year in baseball. We'll do a, an episode on that one time. There are a significant number of luminaries at the opening game on September 30th, 1947 at Yankee Stadium. These include former President Herbert Hoover, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey, and soon to be a second time presidential candidate in 1948 when he loses to Harry Truman. I read a newspaper that I think you've got that backwards. (laughs) Secretary of State George C. Marshall, author of the famed Marshall Plan, uh, New York City Governor, New York, sorry, New York City Mayor William O'Dwyer, who threw out the ceremonial first pitch. The governors of Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania were all at the game. Uh, Commissioner Happy Chandler is there, of course, as well as Babe Ruth, Tris Speaker, Ty Cobb, Bill Terry, Rogers Hornsby. Ralph Kiner. Some of these are still. I just Hornsby could not have been happy because of the integration. Yeah, you know it's funny you say that though because he's another one of those guys who he, he you know he coached in Major League Baseball well into the 1960s. He coached with the expansion Mets, and he was known to have a good relationship with all of the black players. So you know, yeah, I think he might have had some issues earlier in his career, but by that point, you know, a lot of these guys had mellowed. And I again, Fair I do enough. think that's an important part of the story. You know, yeah, guys like Hornsby, right. you know, they. I shouldn't you know, have made a glib. You're right. That was a kind of a glib remark, and 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 you're right. And we can we can you know one day we will do an episode on Ty Cobb that that talks mm-hmm. specifically about how while certainly you can make the case that he was not the most progressive guy, uh, it, it was not the sort of cartoon villain that he's made out to be. But um, not to cut you off, I also wanted to mention with Ruth. Ruth was in the final year of his life at this point. He'd had Babe Ruth Day. I believe on July 5th. So there's sort of two late Babe Ruth appearances that I always get. There's the one where he's wearing the, the like suit and the overcoat. And then there's the one with the Jersey. I think the one with the Jersey was actually later in 1948, right? The one with the Jersey was 48. Yeah. And come March, there will be a new book put out by the society for American baseball research about the history of the entire of the old Yankee stadium and one of the articles will be about all of Babe Ruth's post-career appearances at Yankee Stadium, including these couple of Babe Ruth days. And the author, gentleman by the name of Daniel G. Newman, is uh, very excited about his article that he's contributed to that. All right, we'll talk about that. But that's what the one where he says, like, my voice might sound bad, but it mm-hmm. feels yep. just as bad or something exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. Worse, yeah. So Ruth gets a huge ovation. There's a story that um is kind of interesting here, and it's, 
<laughs> it's not really related to anything, but it's in one of the books that I um that I that I read there that I used to prepare for this. Apparently, Bert, and this is about Ty Cobb, but it's got nothing to do with with the Jackie Robinson piece of it. Bucky Harris is going through this divorce, and I guess he and Cobb, as Cobb and a lot of guys in his playing days, hadn't gotten along that great. And Bucky Harris sees Ty Cobb before game one, and Cobb comes up to him and he says, hey, you know, I know that it's probably tough for you with what you're going through with the divorce right now. And I just wanted to let you know that if you ever needed to get a night out, I would be more than glad to babysit your children. (laughs) It's just like, can you imagine Ty Cobb babysitting children? It's one of those things that just doesn't, it just doesn't match, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you can picture Babe Ruth. You can picture even like a Mickey Mantle or somebody or Willie Mays, but like Ty Cobb, not just doing it, but like offering, like, babysit somebody's children i just got a kick out of that yeah it's very interesting there's just it's one of those things like you know you don't picture certain things about certain people and ty cobb is a babysitter is one of those things so yeah you're right you're right about that so i don't want to do this for every game but i just want to give you an idea the first game just kind of kind of give you an idea what the lineups are it's at yankee stadium Dodgers have Eddie Stanky uh, leading off and playing second base. Jackie Robinson at first. Pete Reeser is playing center field. Dixie Walker's cleanup. He's playing right field. Gene Hermansky in left. Bruce Edwards is the catcher. He's in. He's batting sixth. You got Spider Jorgensen at third base. The Hall of Famer Pee Wee Reese is playing shortstop and he's hitting eighth. And then the starting pitcher in the first game for the Dodgers is Ralph Branca. For the Yankees, it's. Snuffy Sternweiss, uh, the second baseman leading off. Tommy Henrik in right field. Yogi Berra is batting third and playing catcher, although he was known as Larry Berra at this point. He'd, he hadn't widely been given the Yogi nickname quite yet. DiMaggio's in center, batting uh, batting fourth. George McQuinn, who was a journeyman first baseman, had been an all-star in the early part of his career with the St. Louis Browns, but was finishing out his career in his late thirties with the Yankees. He's the first baseman and he is batting fifth. And you got Billy Johnson at third base, Johnny Lindell in left field batting seventh, another hall of fame shortstop batting eighth is Phil Rizzuto. And then a gentleman by the name of Speck Shea, whose first name was what was Spe- Francis Joseph Shea, but he was known as Speck. And I don't see any glasses on him in his baseball reference picture. So I don't know why he would have been called Speck. Usually any guy by who, but he was called Speck or Specs was a, um, was a, was a, a glasses wearer in one way, shape or form, but he's the starting pitcher. And that is game one of the 47 world series. Speck Shea, uh, by the way, also from Norgatuck, Connecticut. Uh, he was also known as the Nogatuck Nugget Nuggets because of that. <laughs> they didn't try. Oh, he was nicknamed. Hard. He was nicknamed Speck because of his freckles. Oh well, I guess that makes sense. Very interesting. Because I guess you'd be Specks if you were somebody. If you were, if it was glasses, it's usually Specks. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. One of the storylines going into this. First of all, I think we should also notice that this note that this is the first. World Series, it's broadcast on television. It's not nationwide. 
It's just in a few cities on the eastern seaboard. And it's also done by two legendary broadcasters. What they did in those days and what they would do for another 20 years to come is that the two teams in the World Series would each contribute a broadcaster for both the radio and the television broadcasts of the World Series. And in 47, you got Red Barber for the Dodgers. You got Mel Allen for the Yankees. So it's two classic, classic Hall of Fame broadcasters who would later work together on the Yankee broadcast in the 50s doing the games for the uh, the first televised games in World Series history. So you got they're kind of all over the place. Games one and five are on NBC. Games three and four are on CBS. And then the Dumont Network has games two, six and seven. We talked a little bit when we did the Fox episode, which I don't know, that might actually not air until after this one, not post until after this one. But when we did our Fox episode, we talked a little bit about some of the old networks that did sports in the 50s. And Dumont was the was common among a lot of them. Kind of a digression in that Dumont was both a TV company and a TV broadcaster. You know, they they both manufactured TVs and ran a network. And you didn't see that again for another 70 or 80 years. And you kind of see it again now where like, you know, Roku has a TV and Apple TV has Apple has a TV. So it feels like it would be some real like early thing where like in order to see shows on the Dumont network, you needed a Dumont TV. Yeah, no, it probably would be that type of thing. (laughs) I don't know how it is now, but exactly. And you're right. Everything kind of. Everything old is new again sometimes when it comes to media and TV and all that type of stuff. So the Yankees win game one by a score of five to three. They score five runs in the fifth inning. It's their only scoring of the game, but they get they get five runs. Let me see kind of just a quick summary of um, Johnny Lindell uh, has a has a two uh, a, a two RBI double. Bobby Brown, who we talked about last year because he just passed away, I believe in 20 or 21. I forget which year it was. Scores as a pinch hitter, scores on a walk. Tommy Henrik knocks in a couple of runs. Jackie Robinson begins to terrorize Yogi Berra on the base paths. They'd sort of been going back and forth in the press. Been the first inning. Robinson gets on base and immediately steals second base. Barra and Robinson had played against each other the year before when Robinson was with the Montreal Royals and Barra was with the Newark Bears, which was the Yankees' top farm system, top top farm team. And Barra said something along the lines of, he never stole a base from, on me when I was in Newark, and I don't think he's going to now. And Robinson had retorted, you know, if I was as good as he was, I'd keep my mouth shut about it, that type of thing. Robinson also manages to get Speck Shade a balk for the only time in the entire 1947 season. So Robinson in this historic appearance is making his presence known immediately. After he steals second base, he's then thrown out at third base on a fielder's choice. So fair point. uh, Obviously he was being aggressive because there was no force there. He wouldn't have had to go, but they threw him out. They threw him out right after that. So just figured that was worth bringing up. So, yeah. So, but the theme of Robinson embarrassing Berra is is a um is a theme that I think um carries through throughout the series and the Yankees win game 1. Yep. So then they go to game 2 uh the next day at Yankee Stadium again. 
again, these are all afternoon games. It's 1947. And this one does not carry with it the same level of drama, although it's not a blowout from the jump. The Yankees end up winning 10 to three, but it's, you know, they score two in the fifth, one in the four or one in the sixth, and then four in the seventh to blow it open. Uh, up until that point, it's, you know, a pretty close game. Vic Lombardi starts for the Dodgers. Allie Reynolds goes for the Yankees and the Yankees take a two to nothing lead in the series. You want to, do you have any uh, interesting factoid you want to get to about game two here? So Robinson does not steal off of Berra in this game, but Pee Wee Reese does get a steal off of Berra. That's Reese's second steal. Berra, everybody is sort of widely noticing that Berra is not doing well behind the plate. In fact, uh, no less a baseball authority than Connie Mack calls Berra's performance, quote, the worst World Series catching I ever saw. And Connie Mack had been around since 1903, so he probably would have seen most of the World Series catching. So, and I mean, Harris, to be fair, it, it gets lucky that the, the catcher for the 1919 White Sox was not in on the fix, <laughs> or else he might, he might have a different answer, but he might have been second. I want to just see if there's anything else here about about game two. The Dodgers make a lot of mistakes in the second game and route to this uh, to this loss. Do you have in front of you? How, do the Dodgers make any errors in that game or is it just other kind of mistakes in game, in game two? The Dodgers game. make two errors. And I think I have a quote here. Um, Bucky Harris says they just simply can't be as bad as they looked. They really had a tough day, didn't they? We're certainly in the driver's seat now, but we're taking this series one game at a time. Shotton says, I don't feel good about this. Who would feel good about losing the first two games of a World Series? The boys got some bad baseball out of their systems. So wild pitches, all that type of thing. The other, A couple other things I want to note here. The first relief pitcher that the Dodgers bring in is a gentleman by the name of it's a gentleman by the name of and this I think this was actually in the first game. It's a gentleman by the name of Behrman. B-E-H-R. He does pitch he does pitch in this game. I don't know if he pitches in game one too. What where were you where were you going with it? He was a journeyman pitcher. He had been on both Brooklyn and Pittsburgh in 1947. He had an ERA of 6.2 two five um let me look up his stats i want to make sure i'm getting his um i want to make sure i'm getting his exact so pitch. he did pitch in game one he relieved branca he so he's so pitch. he is he's the first pitcher that out of the dodger bullpen his name is hank bearman b-h-r-m-a-n mm-hmm. and his era game two he has a very rough game two he had joined the dodgers um he'd been with them in 46 God, look at this is crazy. Did he get traded twice between teams in the same season? Yeah, okay. He got traded by the Dodgers to Pittsburgh in on May 3rd. And then two months later, the Pittsburgh sent him back to the Dodgers. And this story, I, I kind of feel bad for this guy, but I'm sure he's sort of long since deceased. So I, I don't want to feel... Sad. 
Do you know this story? No, I just when you said I'm sure he's long since. I thought you were going to say I'm sure he's long since got over it. I was going to say, yeah, probably when he died in 1971, he probably got over it. <laughs> so and I just read this story today and I have to admit I'd never heard of this guy before. I knew nothing about him. You know how in this day and age, and I'm saying this more to to, to the fans, the listeners, and I am to Andrew, because I know Andrew knows, like this day and age, a guy will have a day, right? Like they'll yeah. have, you know, it's it's Derek, Derek Jeter, Jeter day. day yeah. And they get the guy and they honor him and maybe he gets a plaque or that type of thing. That used to be something a little different where almost everybody on the team would have a day. And fans sometimes would kick in money to buy this guy stuff. You know, guys would get a call. I'm sorry. That's kind of nice. I mean, with salaries these days, that really would be unnecessary, but go ahead. It wasn't nice for Hank Behrman. Um, And this is from uh, Jonathan Eig, who wrote opening day. It's a story. of It's, it's mostly about Robinson, but he gets into some other aspects of the 47 season. He says, almost every player, even the marginal ones, was honored with a special day in that era. Fans would take up collections and buy cars and radios and watches for their heroes. But on Hank Behrman Day, fans came up with less than $100. They bought him a savings bond, which Behrman dropped to the grass in disgust. <laughs> it, it is kind of funny, and I know this wasn't probably how, why they did it, but like in the midst of this season of like, you know, they've introduced a, a black player for the first time ever. And how are the fans going to react? And then, like, there's just this reliever they're getting on because he stinks. Like, they're booing him like people are booing Robinson. But for him, it's just because he stinks. Like, it's like, man, I can't get a break with these fans. <laughs> That's right. Even the guy they didn't want on the team gets treated better than me. <laughs> You know, I mean, and honestly, this 47 Dodgers, there's so many. The Robinson is the main story, but there's just so many stories. So they go back to Ebbets Field up. The Yankees go back to Ebbets Field up three to nothing and up two to nothing. And Harris, like I said, decides that he's got to bench Yogi Berra. And so he. For the third game, and the pitching matchup for the third game is Bobo Newsom, the guy who played on every team that I mentioned, against a, sort of another veteran journeyman type named Joe Hatton for the Dodgers. And so they bring in uh, Sherm Lawler, who in and of himself ends up being a, an all-star catcher for the White Sox in most of the 50s. He's the starting catcher on the basically on the White Sox for the entire 50s, including on the, the go-go White Sox that we did a show. We, I on. knew I recognized that name. Yeah, did a show on about it. And I think we even talked about him a little bit in this context when we did the go-go White Sox episode. We talked about how in 47, it was kind of an almost even money proposition who was going to be the Yankees catcher of the future. And obviously they they made the right decision because Yogi Berra is an all time great, but Sherm Lawler, no slouch himself. And he gets the start for the Yankees in game three of the world series, because Harris is just at a point where he just cannot deal with Berra's terrible defense any longer. And, at Ebbets Field, the Dodgers finally get a win, nine to eight. 
Yeah, it's the the Dodgers basically they explode off on Bobo Newsom in the in the second inning. They get up six nothing in the second inning. Eddie Stanky has a, hits a two run double to make it four to nothing. Newsom comes out of the game. Two more runs come in. The Yankees actually score in the next five innings. So they score two in the third. So it's seven to two. Then they score two in the fourth, make it seven to four. But the Dodgers keep scoring. It's nine to four. Gets as close as nine to seven. Um, the Dodgers get a lot of they get two innings of relief from Ralph Branca, who had pitched in game one. They get two and two and two thirds out of Hugh Casey. The Yankees bullpen's pretty good. Wow. This is a weird game in that almost every pitcher who pitched let up runs mm-hmm. until the last two. But you know, in the end, it's nine to eight. I'm trying to see if the Yankees maybe did they threaten at the end of the game or anything like that. Um, no, but Yogi Berra was put in the game and he hits a home run in the next in the seventh inning to make it nine to eight and cut it to one run. And that home run is very noteworthy for two reasons. First of all, it's Yogi Berra's first postseason home run, first World Series home run. He only ever plays in World Series. And I don't know how many he ends up with in his career, but it's a lot. I think it's I have his baseball reference page up here. How many? How many postseason home runs for Yogi Berra in his career? He hits 12. So it's the first of 12 World Series home runs for Yogi Berra. It's also the first pinch hit home run in World Series history. So in in almost a half century of the World Series, there'd never been a pinch hit home run until Yogi Berra hits one in game three of the 47 World Series. And... This is the longest game to date in World Series history. Do you want to take a guess at how long? This game three, nine, eight. Yeah. Let's guess. Nine, eight. TV, but no TV timeouts yet. Three hours and five minutes. Did you look it up? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's a that's a two nothing game in this day and age. Yeah, exactly. So three hours and five minutes. The Yankees have a chance late in the game on an at bat by Bobby Brown, who we mentioned, the future medical doctor and president of the American League. He hits a pinch hit double off of the foul screen in right at Ebbets Field, which is a three feet wide screen that extends above the top of the wall. If the ball hits this screen, it's in play and the runner can only you know get as far as he can get the hit that Brown has. Uh, it's a double. It's only two bases. The rule was later changed at Ebbets Field to make the make it a um, a home run and had that hit by Bobby Brown been a home run, the Yankees would have tied the game in, I believe it's the bottom of the, where is that? Where is this hit? The book I'm reading made it seem like it was later in the game, but this I'm trying to find yeah, here. The, the thing I have, well, I can look it up, but it says that they Yankees went down in order in the ninth, so it definitely wasn't in the ninth. When was this hit? Am I looking at the wrong game? First of all, all right, and I'm reading a book by Red Barber, and he was there, so you'd think that he, you'd think that his writing would be accurate here. Hold on, you said Bobby Brown. Yeah, 
All right, I'm looking here. Lawler, Clark, Steinweiss, Lawler. Oh, 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 okay, interesting. Oh, so it's in the top of the sixth. I just, yeah. He comes up at the beginning of the inning and doubles. But had, I mean, I guess you can't really. That's kind of a dumb point by Red Barber because he scored anyway. Yeah, it was a double, then a ground out, then he scored on a double from uh, Heinrich, and then pop up, walk, walk, pop, fly. So the Yankees got a bunch of runners in the inning. They, yeah, but he would. That's, they that's, stranded the bases loaded, but yeah, that's a little. That thin. play wouldn't have made Red Barber. Bad, bad job, job, Red Barber. Bad job out of you in that spot. So nine to eight, Dodgers win, going to their first game, and. Now we go into game four, which is one of the most interesting games in World Series history. Well, it's Friday, October 3rd, 1947. We should also point out no off days, that no off days, no shifting between, uh, you know, cities. So they play seven games in seven days in this World Series. And this is the fourth straight day. We're still at Ebbets Field. Like we said, the Dodgers, so far, the home teams won every game. In the series, Yankees up two to one. Starting pitching matchup in game four is Bill Bevins going for the Yankees against Harry Taylor for the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, who does not pitch for very long. No, he does not. And the Yankees jump out to a lead in this game, not a very impressive lead, but they score a run in the first inning. They score a run in the fourth inning DiMaggio um, uh, walks with the bases loaded to score Snuffy Sternweiss. And then in the fourth inning, Johnny Lindell uh, doubles home Billy Johnson, who tripled to open the inning off of Taylor. And because Taylor's Taylor's still in the game, I'd imagine in the fifth inning. No, no, he doesn't pick. Oh, no, it's got. They take him out early. Why do they take him out so early? Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out. I mean, he, he he's it's not like they let him get much time. He only pitched to he let up two hits and a walk. He pitched to three batters, from what I can tell. Let me see. Let me see what I can find on that. Um All right. Leading off for the Yankees, Sternweiss drilled Taylor's first pitch for a single to left. Henrik singles, uh Yogi Berra. Hits a ball to shortstop, uh, which is a tailor-made double play. Pee Wee Reese com- commits a throwing error, so they get no outs. Bases are loaded, and then DiMaggio walks in a run. So he pitches to four batters, this guy. And had Pee Wee Reese not made an error at shortstop, so that's uh, you think guys have a quick hook now. That is a that is an incredibly quick hook for, uh, yeah, for Taylor. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember reading about that in like 19... 19- 30 or like the 1912 world series McGraw did that a few times like you know we talk about now like guys take pitchers out in the fourth inning if they start to struggle especially in playoff games that's one thing you don't usually see it after three batters but I guess guys back then you know 1912 and 1947 are not the same era but like they just go like hey he doesn't have it we're getting them yeah they would maybe go more on feel than on anything yeah, else you, you wouldn't do that if you had a, a top of the line pitcher or an all-star or, or whatever but anybody else you'd kind of go like eh, i don't like the way he's looking i don't like the way i don't like his body language out there we're going to get him so i don't want to spoil it but weird when you look at a starting pitcher who did not get anybody out 
on one side and then what the other starting pitcher's line was and which team won the game. So Yankees score a run in the first. They score a run in the fourth. They're up two to nothing. In the bottom of the fifth, Brooklyn gets a run back with a walk, a walk, a bunt ground out fielder's choice with the runner out at first. Pee Wee Reese then bats home a run on another fielder's choice. And then there's a stolen base and a strikeout to get them out of the inning. By the ninth inning, the Dodgers have managed to be down only three, two to one, I should say. They do not have a single hit. Bevins going into the ninth inning has walked. How many guys has Bevins walked going into the ninth inning? He he has 10 total in the game, but two of those are in the bottom of the ninth. So he's walked eight batters. He's given up a run. The Yankees have committed an error. So he goes into the ninth inning with a no hitter. And keep in mind, this is nine years before Don Larson. So he is poised to pitch the first no hitter in World Series history, which in those days would have made it also the first World Series in, in baseball postseason history. But he's still got a very good chance at losing the whole game. The TV broadcast is being done by Mel Allen and Red Barber. Mel Allen had done the first half of the game. Red Barber's doing the second. And going into this ninth inning, go ahead, Ange. As you say, we should also point out in the top of the ninth, the Yankees ended up with the bases loaded and one out. And Tommy Heinrich uh, grant, grounds into a double play that ends the inning and keeps the game at two to one. So the Yankees had a chance to blow it open there and they can, uh, they couldn't get anything across. Barber not, does not believe in the superstition that you don't mention a no hitter. He said that Mel was a devout practitioner of the whole thing. He'd say things like, don't go away. Something big has happened. And he wouldn't even say when he gave the totals, he wouldn't even say like the Dodgers have one run on no hits and so many errors. He would actually stop. He'd say the Dodgers have one run and no errors, that type of thing. He wouldn't even mention it, but Red Barber views himself very much as a reporter, so he continues to give. He says when when he when he starts doing the game in the fifth inning, he says, I gave the five inning totals, the Yankees two runs, six hits and one error, the Dodgers one run, no hits and two errors. Mel, sitting by me, started making choking sounds like he was trying to swallow China berry seeds. <laughs> I don't know what China berry seeds are, but they must not be too easy to. Probably something that's got a less uh, insensitive name in the modern era. <laughs> I'll look what they're called. Um, go ahead. And by this point, Bevins has walked more players in a game, in a World Series game, than any pitcher since 1910. So he is, even for the 40s, he is walking a heck of a lot of guys. China berry seeds appear to be like a big kind of seed. Well, I hadn't gotten that from what he said. So thanks for clearing that up. I don't, but okay. They, you want me to give you the exact definition of what they are as if that's going to mean anything to you? Sure. All parts of the plant, especially the fruit, well, they're also poisonous. 
So that would that would also be a problem. Um, I think that would be it says it's a Texas from the Texas Invasive Species Institute that they're all poison. Oh, yes. So I think the bigger problem would be the poison and less the size. <laughs> so they go in to the bottom of the ninth. Yankees up two to one. And if you find it online, I remember seeing it on the we had a video growing up of the history of the Yankees. It was a VHS tape, but it only went through 1987. But it was sort of sort of one of the first of those documentaries. You remember what I'm talking about, right? I thought we used to rent it from the library. I didn't think we had it. Oh, you're right. We used to rent it from the library and I have it now. I bought it off eBay a couple of years ago. Also, at, as of 1987, it was fair to wonder if there was going to be any more history for the Yankees. So, um, <laughs> well, it was also kind of weird watching that tape in 1998. And it's like <laughs> <laughs> this kind of stops before a lot of important things happen. But anyway, there's this clip of Bevins like doing a voiceover. Like afterwards, they must have gone to him and been like talking through the talk us through this ninth inning. So. The catcher, Bruce Edwards, flies out. So that's one out. And then Carl Farrillo walks. Spider Jorgensen pops out to first base. So now they've got one out, two outs with a runner on first and the pitcher slot coming up. Oh, and they send in Algie on Frito. And that's a name you're going to hear again in a minute. They send in Algie and Frito to pinch run. He's a speedster. They send him in to pinch run to for Farrillo at first base and he immediately steals second base during the next batter. So the pitcher, uh, the relief pitcher, Hugh Casey is coming up and Shotton needs a pinch hitter. He looks on his bench and I want to give you an idea of, of who he's got on the bench here because he looks at the bench and sees it as something that's pretty thin. He looks at um he sees the the backup catcher who's a guy by the name of Gil Hodges, who a couple <laughs> of years later that would have been a no-brainer to put in Gil Hodges. He sees he had sent Gianfredo in to run. And so he's really low on guys. He's got a utility infielder by the name of Eddie Mixis. He's got a Cookie Lavagetto, who we'll hear about in a minute. And he's got a guy by the name of Pete Reeser. Now, Pete Reeser had been with the team as a more or less a starting outfielder for much of the season. He started played 110 games, 462 at bats, batting average of 309. Pete Reeser had been a uh, essentially a rookie. He, his first full season was in 1941 with the Dodgers. The first year they went to the World Series. He led the league that year in doubles, triples, won a batting title with a 343 batting average, slugging OPS, had a also led the league in hit by pitch with 11, 11, uh, 11 hit by pitch, finished second in the MVP voting to his teammate, Dolph Camilli. In fact, in 1941, the top three MVP finishers were all uh, members of the 41 Dodger team. And there's a book that just came out by him or about him, I should say, called Baseball's Greatest What If. And I don't remember whether it was in 41 or in 42, but early on in his career, Pete Reeser runs 
headlong into a brick wall chasing a fly ball basically knocks himself silly his career is never the same he then goes on to serve three years in the military so he misses 43 44 45 and by the time he comes back even though he leads the league in steals in 46 and makes another all-star team he's not the same player he once was and by the 1947 is the last time that he'll get more than about 250 plate appearances. It's the last time he'll appear in more than a hundred games. And Shotton doesn't think very, very highly of him, partly because he thinks Reeser is sort of, you know, this injury prone guy. And he also, because he suspects that Reeser as well as Ralph, Ralph Branca have been feeding negative quotes to the press about Shotton and his managing. But he looks at what he views are some limited options and Reeser who can barely walk, who I think it was the trainer or the doctor had told him he shouldn't even try to play. Shotten thinks that Reeser's his best option. And so they put him in. He pinch hits Bevins. And like I said, um, Gianfrido immediately steals second. So now they've got runners up just a runner on second. So they walk Reezer. They put the tying run on the go ahead run on to set up the force play with two outs. They immediately stand in uh, another pinch runner for Reezer, Eddie Mixis, and then they pinch hit for their leadoff batter. They pinch hit for Eddie Stanky with a guy by the name of Cookie Lavagetto. And he's a righty. Bevins is a righty, but they've got no lefties left on the bench. So it's got to be a right-handed hitter against the right-handed Bevins, even though, you know, that would normally not be what you would do. And Bevins throws a pitch and Lavagetto doubles off the wall. And there's this famous quote of this famous, you know, clip of Red Barber saying, here comes the tying run and here comes the winning run. And the Dodgers break up the no-hitter win the game all on this last pitch of game four of the 47 world series. The last hit of cookie Lavagetto's career. Uh, this is the last series of his career. In addition, it's also the last series of Bevin's career. And it's the last. And when I say series, I mean, this is the last games of their career. Mm-hmm. Lavagetto, Bevin's and Gianfrido, all the key players in that, uh, in that half inning. This is the, Last couple of days of their career, even if they didn't all know it at the time. But uh, we have now in the second Yankees Dodgers World Series ever, we have our second straight, extremely fluky, memorable game four. Epic game four. Yep. The famous sports writer says Harris violated all 10 commandments of the of the dugout by ordering Bevins to walk Reeser. He also later writes that same day that he said the saddest person in the world is the sports writer whose typewriter is missing a V and can't type <laughs> Bevins or Levichetto. <laughs> and apparently as he's walking off the field, the DiMaggio just comes up to Bevins and says, tough luck, Bill. And Bevins says, well, I guess there wasn't anything left to say other than that. So the and Dodgers. I mean, to be honest, that's as, that's as sentimental as Joe DiMaggio <laughs> usually got. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. And so all of a sudden from thinking they were almost dead and about to be not only no hit, but to go down three to one in the series, the 
Dodgers are very much alive. They're tied at two going into game five at Ebbets Field. And you got the starters or you got the Yankee starter from game one, which is Spec Shea back on the mound. And you got Rex Barney, who's pitching for the the Dodgers. Spec Shea pitches an excellent game, wins his second game of the World Series. It's a a 2-0. He goes to 2-0 in the series. It is a 2-1 Yankee victory, complete game. Uh, DiMaggio hits a home run off of Rex Barney in the fifth inning to does that get the Yankee scoring. Sorry, no, they also scored in the fourth. They scored on a fourth. Um, they actually scored on an RBI single by Shea in the in the fourth inning. And that's, you know, it's a good game. It's not nearly as high scoring as some of the previous games have been, but it's a win for the Yankees at Ebbets Field. And they're going back to Yankee Stadium, like you said, with no off days up three to two in the 1947 World Series. They get a complete game out of Spec Shea in this game. In the ninth inning, uh, the Dodgers get the leadoff man on. They sacrifice Bunham over to second base. And then uh, Shea gets the next two guys out, including the last batter of the game, which is Cookie Lavagetto. Again, uh, Shea gets him to uh, strike out with the tying run at second base. And the Dodgers, who had needed the heroics the day before to tie the series, come up uh, a heroic short in this game and now are faced with the tall order of, yeah, they won two out of three. Yeah, they tied the series. Now they have to go find a way to win a game at Yankee Stadium. The last game at Yankee Stadium, they lost 10 to three just a couple of days earlier. Shotton is frustrated because in, earlier in the game with the Dodgers potentially being able to rally, he had ordered Carl Farillo to bunt and Farillo had not done so. And so he's he's angry at his team. He's we mentioned earlier about uh, some of the other players feeding quotes. So. Well, some of the guys are fans of Mr. Shotton. Some of the, some of the others certainly are not. So he's starting to maybe lose the locker room just a little bit. And yeah, so then we now we go to game six back in New York. You got Vic Lombardi pitching for the Dodgers, who I don't believe lasts very long. Like two and two and two thirds. But he gets eventually relieved by Branca and starting for the Yankees is another guy who doesn't last very long, and that's Allie Reynolds, who himself only goes two and a third. And they return to their high-scoring ways, and this is an 8-6 Dodger victory. Yeah, neither starting pitcher uh, makes it out of the third inning. Lombardi goes two and two-thirds, five hits, four runs. He's now pitching to a 12 ERA in the series, above a 12. Allie Reynolds only goes two and a third. He leaves after six tits and four runs, three of them earned. So after a wild first three innings, back to a four to four game, both teams are into their bullpen. The Yankees get a run in the bottom of the fourth. Um, but then the Dodgers in the sixth inning explode for four more runs. How did the Yankees get that in the fourth? In the bottom of the fourth, the Yankees get a run on a Yogi Berra RBI single. So he's back in the lineup and he's uh, he has the uh, the RBI single, but then in the sixth um, 
they get a uh, sacrifice fly from Cookie Lavagetto to score a run, then a double from Bobby Bragan scores a run, and then Pee Wee Reese with a two uh, two run single makes it six to five to put the Dodgers. Or excuse me, makes it I believe eight puts the Dodgers ahead for good. I might have screwed that up. Let me look here. Did that mean that must have made it eight five? Yeah, that made it eight five. I'm sorry. Um, so that makes it eight five, and that's enough to win it for them. The Yankees managed to get a run in the ninth inning, but they are unable to make it any further. So the Yankees, with a chance to win the World Series, lose the game eight to six. The most famous play of this game comes in the bottom of the sixth inning, and. We talked a little bit earlier about Dan Bankhead, who was the second black player ever to participate in a World Series. He had pinch run in the previous inning and he comes out and the Dodgers also make a bunch of other defensive switches. And that includes Cookie Lavagetto going in to play third base and Eddie Mixis, the utility man, being replaced in left field by Algie and Frito and the Yankees got Sternweiss walks, Berra singles, and then DiMaggio comes up against Brooklyn pitcher, Joe, Joe Hatton and hits a monstrous fly ball to left field that Gianfrido, who keep in mind had just entered the game reaches up and what we would call right in front of the bullpen, what we would call today, robbing, the home run and it is famous because there's a clip and keep in mind that this was the first game uh, first world series ever televised there's a clip of dimaggio rounding first base and once he saw that the ball was caught sort of kicking at the dirt and showing frustration and it was always said that this was one of if not the only time that dimaggio ever showed any real emotion on the field yeah, they, wasn't there something where they talked about, like, despite obviously this being the first World Series with black players, like all these big games, all these big moments in this series involved Italians? Yeah, there's Gian a Frito and DiMaggio and Lavagetto. One of the one of the the black uh, newspapers afterwards said something along the lines of, you know, if we're going to be ethnic about it, we'd have to tip the cap to those of Italian descent. But it's been a great World Series, you know, no matter who. Okay. No matter who your parents are, that type of thing on the G and Frito catch. It's interesting. I found sort of some conflicting and maybe they're not conflicting. Maybe they just sort of are different things that DiMaggio said to different people. Off the record, he tells a group of reporters, he says, don't write this in the paper. But the truth is, if he'd been playing me right, he would have he would have made it look easy. So he was bitter and he thought that the only reason reason that G and Frito had seemed to make such a wonderful catch was that he was playing out of position in the first place. But then I also found another quote where DiMaggio says it's the best coach that any, the best catch that anybody ever made against him. So choose which story you want to believe, but DiMaggio one way or the other, not happy about the catch that's get, that gets made. And so they go into game seven of the world series. And this is, this is sort of a series, no pun intended. There had been a seven game series in 1946, the year before. So for the second year in a row, you got a really good world series on your hands. October 6th, 
only six days from when the previous from game one and when it had started. You got Hal Gregg on the mound for Brooklyn, and you got Spec Shea on the mound again for the Yankees. And one of the things that Shotton is frustrated about is he feels that Branch Rickey basically did nothing to shore up the pitching staff in during the season, despite Shotton's repeated pleas to Ricky that something needed to be done about this pitching staff. Although like, I guess he shouldn't complain too much because he did bring Hank Berman back. So, I mean, you can't complain. <laughs> and I, I, the only, in fact, the only pitcher that he brought in all year was Dan Bankhead. And first of all, Bankhead doesn't pitch in the series. And second of all, that seemed to almost be more about Ricky wanting to have another black player on the team with Robinson. And obviously nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but the only pitching acquisition that Ricky had made all season was for a guy that wasn't really being brought in for his pitching abilities. And you see that because they keep having to throw these guys out there, including in game seven, these guys who pitched horribly in the series, but they have no choice but to keep keep putting them out there. Meanwhile, Harris and the Yankees are able to throw Spec Shea out there, and he's already won both of his starts in the series. And what's his what's his ERA for this? His final ERA for the entire um yeah, his ERA at the end of the series? His ERA at the end of the series is 2.35, and he doesn't even win this game. So I'd imagine that his ERA was probably even lower going into this series, going into game seven. Game one, he pitches five innings, gives up one earned run. Game two, he pitches nine innings, gives up one earned run. Meanwhile, the starting pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers is Hal Gregg. Yeah, he he pitched to a 3.55 ERA in the series. Greg did. The two guys who had to pitch after him ended up with ERAs over seven in the series. And it's not like either of them got rocked in game seven. So, so they, they were, were lower going in. Or higher, depending on how you want to look. Yeah, higher going in, yeah. I should say. That's exactly right. So the 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 point that we're trying to get across here is that the pitching advantage Yankees versus Dodgers is an important important point in this series. And and this game seven, it's it's not a blowout. The final score is five to two. The Yankees bring Joe Page out of the bullpen in the fourth inning to relieve Shea after Bevins had come in. Page pitches five innings, gives up only one hit. No runs, no walks, only strikes out one. So his fielders help him. A lot of people say that if there was a an, an MVP of the 47 World Series, that Joe Page might not have been a bad candidate based solely on his game winning performance in game seven. Incidentally, Joe Page, sort of a very uh, a man who enjoyed the the nightlife and the enjoyed his liquor. And I think we may even mentioned at the beginning here a large part of Joe McCarthy's frustrations the year before came from the fact that page was supposed to be their ace reliever and was out drinking and carousing all the time. He was also page was DiMaggio's roommate on the road, which is another interesting sort of just a little bit of a note about him. 
but he comes in, he shuts the Dodgers down. His his curveball had not been working well for him. So he basically throws only fastballs for five innings, but he closes the door. And in this seven game epic World Series, the Yankees have taken out the Dodgers uh, five to two and they win the World Series four to three. Yep, the Yankees add a couple of runs throughout. They take the lead in the fourth inning, three to two. They add a run uh, each in the seventh and eighth to get ahead, five two. Like you mentioned, Page goes from when he comes in in the fifth, the rest of the way to close the door. Yankees win the game five to two. They win the series four to three. What championship number would this have been for them? 23, 27, 28, 32. 36, 37, 38, 39, 41, 43. So this would have been their 11th championship, I guess. Does that sound right to you? For the Yankees. So they won three in the 20s. They won five in the 30s. That's eight. And they'd won two earlier in the 40s. Yes, this is their earliest championship. 11th. What did I say? earliest no that would be stupid i think i was already starting to i think i was already starting to read from this book this is do you know great... what today you know what before you go on do you know what this also was the only time a certain thing has ever happened for the yankees only time i don't know what is it the only time they've ever won a game seven of the world series at home really yeah we'd have to go through how many times they had the opportunity probably not a ton was but it says yep this was the first and to date only World Series in which the Yankees won Game 7 in their home stadium. The one that immediately comes to mind, I know they lost 55 to Brooklyn eight years later. Mm-hmm. That's the other one. 26 in St. Louis? 26 would have had to have been in St. Louis because for, for for up yeah, until 94, it was even yeah. in odd years. Yeah, yeah. So was there's a gr- seven a seven-game series? 57 was a seven-game series, so they would have lost Game 7 to Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. And 81 was not a seven game series, was it? No, no. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And then so, after that, they were on to even years. Um, Yeah. That, that's funny to think about. Pretty weird. But so there's a great book called Electric October by by Kevin Cook, which is just about this World Series. And this is what he says about Page. Nobody ever knew exactly what to expect from Joe Page. Tall and shifty eyed. He mixed a 90 plus fastball with an illegal spitball. He liked, liked to use on two strike counts. After a nine-win season in 1946, he demanded a raise from club club president Larry McPhail. McPhail came back with a dare. He said, Joe, sign this contract and I'll make you a deal. I'll go to Bucky Harris on payday, the first and 15th of each month. If he says, Paige is my boy, I will hand you $2,500 bills. (laughs) His offer appealed to the Riverboat Gambler and Paige who signed. They posted their pact. They toasted their pact with a drink. As sports writer John Lardner wrote, Joe had a lot of stuff. He drank a lot of stuff. (laughs) He was a switch drinker. He could lift a glass with either hand. McPhail, true to his word, asked Harris about Page's status every two weeks. There were 11 paydays between April and October. Eight times Bucky said, Page is my boy. Eight times McPhail handed 25 crisp hundreds to a, yeah, 25 crisp hundreds to a smiling Joe Page. So basically, that's what eight times 2,500 is what 20 grand, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In 1947 or what year was it? 47. Yeah. 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 So he won, he won 14 games, save 17, finished 44. Bill James believes that page 
is the first truly modern closer. He says that Harris made Page a reliever. This event, more than any other one thing, brought about the general acceptance of the concept of full-time relievers as a positive as- aspect, as a positive asset to the team. Bucky Harris didn't mind a drink himself. He liked to share a post-game whiskey with the writers. And after Page closed out a Yankees win, he'd raise a glass to toast the reliever and say, gentlemen, Joe Page. $20,000 in 1947 is equivalent to 265000 and change today. Jeez. Not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> Page only really hangs around a couple of years. Um, I think 49, the first single year, he's a key member of the team. And then after that, he's kind of... Um, kind of kind of trails off. There is a great story about spring training in the early the early Stengel years where he and a bunch of his teammates, including Snuffy Sternweiss, take him out on a boat to go fishing during spring training. And they they tell the boat captain, the guy who's driving the boat, he's in on it. They they find out a way to tie Paige's fishing line to a bucket in the water. And every time he's just about to reel it in, the boat captain speeds up. And so he can't reel in the bucket. And finally, after like six or seven hours on the water, they reel it in. He reels it in and he realizes it's a bucket. And for the rest of the season, his teammates would come up to him and say, hey, Joe, you want to go bucket fishing tomorrow? (laughs) He gets back at Snuffy Sternweiss when they're all at a cabin, maybe during the spring, spring, same spring training or the following winter. He shoots a bear puts it in the outhouse knowing that snuffy sternweiss is the guy who'll be in the outhouse first thing the next morning and when snuffy sternweiss opens the door to the outhouse the bear fall the dead bear falls on him so <laughs> that's pretty good if you can can manage it <laughs> they love their pranks uh, i also just want to note i just want to go back before we get to the aftermath i want to go back to game 5 real quick Red Barber very much did not believe that it was his job to be a cheerleader, either for his team or for the other team or anything. And so he was very sort of even keeled when Bevins lost the no hitter and the Dodgers won game four. And all he said was, I'll be a suck egg mule. And that was his very even handed remark. And his boss at the Columbia Broadcasting System told him that he was very happy with the fact that he had just sort of reported it very calmly and not gotten too emotional. And he thought that Barbara did a really good job in calling the game and not, not getting too emotional about it as a real newsman should. And this guy should know because Barber's boss at the time, gentleman by the name of Edward R. Murrow. I had a feeling that's where you were going. Yeah. <laughs> so the Yankees win in seven, the, Dodgers vote DeRocher a World Series share, even though he had not managed the team all year. Dodger ownership quickly reverses that decision. (laughs) Although DeRocher does come back for a time in 1948, clashes with the players, clashes with Robinson. Robinson actually had um, spent a lot of time on the banquet circle in banquet circuit in the 47 offseason and came to camp overweight. DeRocher doesn't like this little known fact that Dodgers actually placed Jackie Robinson on waivers in 1948. Really? Nobody signs him. But can you imagine how different American history would be? Why did they do that? Because I think he and DeRocher were clashing and Robinson had gained a bunch of weight and wasn't playing well. 
48, not a great year for Robinson. 48 is kind of a dip for him. And then he comes back in 49 and in like 49, 50, 51 are where he has his best seasons. And uh, DeRocher says about Robinson, something along the lines of he was thin for Shotten and he's fat for me or something like that. And so you also see the beginning of the mutual dislike between those two guys. So a lot of a lot going on there with the Dodgers in 48. The owner of the Giants, Horace Stoneham, calls Branch Rickey about potentially hiring Shotten in 48, who's still under contract to the Dodgers, even though he's not the manager anymore. And Branch Rickey says to him, how would you like to have DeRocher instead? <laughs> and so <laughs> midseason in 48, DeRocher goes from the Dodgers to the Giants. It's a manager trade between the two National League teams. And two or three weeks after having managed the Dodgers, DeRocher's coaching, managing the Giants. Just a very, very weird situation the following year in 48. The Yankees uh, barely missed the pennant in in 1948. They lose out in a three team, uh, you know, end of the season pennant race. Uh, the Indians beat out both the Yankees and the Red Sox in 48. Ownership, uh, which is Dan Topping and Del Webb, Larry McPhail's gone, which is something we'll talk about in a minute. They start to class with Harris. They feel that Harris is too loose with his players. He's a little bit too much of a players manager. So they fire Harris and they end up bringing in Casey Stengel, who goes on to manage a team for the next 12 years and wins what? seven world series and 10 pennants. 10 pennants and wins the 49 world series or the 49 pennant in a last game of the season victory over the Red Sox who are now managed by Joe McCarthy. Harris goes back and manages the senators for the third time, eventually makes it into the hall of fame. The Dodgers by 49 Robinson has his best season as a pro in 49 hits 342 wins the MVP award. By this time, you got Hodges and Snyder and Ferrillo and those guys, Campanella, playing in the lineup every day. You got Don Newcomb coming into his own, who's sort of the ace of the early 50s teams. And so by 49, they truly are kind of the boys of summer Dodger team that everybody knows. Yep. And then they pick up right where they had left off and losing a bunch of World Series to the Yankees before they finally turn it around in 55. But, um, you know, this is sort of the uh, the precursor to all that. And I would just note one final thing. Larry McPhail, who we talked about in a previous episode, gets very, very drunk and quits the team at the victory party for the 1947 World Series. Yankees. Harris was shaking hands and accepting praise for winning the World Series when McPhail barreled into the room. Reporters go towards McPhail. He says, stay away or get punched. Earlier, he had burst into tears when the game ending double play had been turned. He said, we won. I'm quitting. I can't take the pressure anymore. He uh, goes to the Dodger president to R- Ricky and he says, I, you've got a fine team and I want to congratulate with you. And then uh, Ricky starts to shake McPhail's hand and he leans in close and he says, I'm shaking hands with you because all of these people are watching, but I don't like you. Don't ever speak to me again. After that, McPhail spent several hours with a bottle of scotch at the Biltmore Hotel. McPhail um, gets in front of a reporter he calls Ricky a Bible-quoting, hypocritical, tightwad son of a bitch. 
He's not done. He fires the farm director, George Weiss, on the spot because Weiss is talking back to him. This is all at a victory party. Keep in mind. (laughs) They just won the World Series. Now that they they end up hiring Weiss back after McPhail's gone. He's the general manager. Wasn't Weiss there forever? He's the general manager of the team into the early 60s, and he's in the Hall of Fame today. Uh, McPhail then sits next to a friend of his, John McDonald, who he had known when he was with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He starts ripping into Branch Rickey and he um, when McDonald tries to defend Ricky McPhail yells you Judas and punches him in the eye topping tries to uh, intervene McPhail says hey topping do you know what you are a guy born with a silver spoon in your mouth who never made a dollar in your life topping uh, grabs McPhail and says I've heard enough from you we've taken everything we're going to take from you if you act up again I'm going to knock your head off Half an hour later, McPhail sees Joe Page and his wife. He says, where were you, Joe, before I picked you up a bum? You and this broad here, you were nothing. And then um, <laughs> what do you say? Guy's wife gets it. <laughs> and then, according to the journalist, Topping was approaching with a murderous look. Mrs. Page burst into tears. McPhail weaved away, left exited the room and was out of baseball. <laughs> I guess if you're going to go, go with a flourish, right? <laughs> curses out the other team, curses out his own team, <laughs> punches like, a friend. <laughs> guy who just won him the World Series earlier that day. Guy probably wasn't, wasn't exp- guy pitches five innings of shutout baseball in game seven of the World Series to win the World Series. Probably not expecting the owner to yell at him and his wife. After he's, he's like, what, what the hell? Like, we just got, we had, we were just at dinner. Like, what the hell happens? <laughs> so as the book by Kevin Cook says, a very electric October, a very fun World Series, a very modern World Series, groundbreaking in that it's the first World Series to feature an African-American player. It's, it's you know, the beginning of a career. And it, it's ironic, too, because a decade about about a decade later one of Jackie Robinson's last famous world series moment is that steal a home plate against Yogi Berra when both men are aging legends so there's some interesting bookends there in the Robinson Berra World Series rivalry as we say Yankees go on to play the Dodgers in the World Series an additional 5 times winning all but one which is the Dodgers famed 55 World Series victory and the beginning of an era in New York City baseball, the beginning of an era in American history, as far as the breaking of the color barrier and all of these things, first game televised. So in some ways, kind of the first modern World Series and one that's really just a lot of fun. You got blown no hitters. You got journeymen making great catches and just you name it. So a really fun World Series that we thought would be worth commemorating on its 75th year anniversary. Yeah, um, I learned a lot. I mean, I knew some of this stuff. Um, obviously, I had had researched some unrelated things, so I wasn't as in-depth on the World Series. So uh, I learned a lot. But um, yeah, a lot of them tend to blend together because there were so many Yankee Dodger World Series at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, and you tend to think of 41 as like, okay, that one was on an island. But sometimes it's weird to think that 47 and 49 were such different teams. But both teams had different managers, a lot of different personnel. 
Um, and by 53, a lot of ways, it's totally different teams, let alone 56. And, you know, who knew 10 years later, the Dodgers would be gone. Yeah, that's an excellent or, or point. Almost 10 years later. Excellent point. All right. Well, uh, happy fall. Happy World Series. This will probably drop sometime in about mid-October, mid to late October. So we hope you all enjoy it. And who knows, maybe maybe the Yankees, the Dodgers are both will be in the World Series by the time we uh, by the time you hear this. So until next time, I am Dan Newman and I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Hey, everybody. Dan here. Just wanted to break in real quick at the very end. I predicted that perhaps the Yankees or the Dodgers would be in the World Series by the time this posted. If you're listening, you know that it's actually the Phillies and the Astros. So. A tough postseason for both the Yankees and the Dodgers and a horrible prediction from yours truly. So my apologies for that. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.